Welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous, the internet's number one podcast about small business buying, selling, and operating. Uh, today, me, Mill, and Bills, and I'm Michael, went through a cool case study of a deal for sale uh, that is a bigger company doing, I think, $20 million in revenue and $3 million in profits. Uh, and they export and sell lubricants all over Latin America. So um, we figured out we think they're in Houston. And we talk about who should buy this deal, how to structure it, and how to make it work. Uh, and also just had a good time kind of talking about uh, different types of brokerages and the way to think about those. So uh, here is the episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed making it. Hey, Michael here. want to talk to you about today's sponsor for the episode, uh, which is cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, so Cloud Bookkeeping is actually run by my neighbor, Charlie. So I've met him in person and uh, can attest that he's a real human being and a good person. Uh, and what Cloud Bookkeeping does is offer a full suite of bookkeeping services uh, all in the cloud uh, for you around QuickBooks and other technologies that you're using as a small business owner. Uh, so if you're interested in getting the bookkeeping part of running a business off of your plate and focusing on running your business, uh, Charlie and his team are one to call. Um, they can put together a bunch of other stuff in terms of helping you manage and grow your business besides just bookkeeping, um, sophisticated reporting, uh, definitely helping you get your QuickBooks online set up in the right way, uh, and a number of things around payroll as well. So uh, definitely know them and recommend them. If you want to find out more about cloud bookkeeping, um, you can go to their website at cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, reach out to Charlie. I know many of you have uh, and see if he can help you. Uh, make your running your business easier and more fun by uh, letting them help with a lot of the bookkeeping solutions. So, uh, and when you call, mention this podcast, uh, it would help us uh, and help Charlie know uh, that we're supporting him as well. So thanks a bunch and cloudbookkeeping.com uh, as the sponsor for today's episode. Uh, welcome to Exodus Anonymous. I, this is Gurdley. I have a report for you. I will be on my best behavior, which means... I'm supposed to wait at least 10 minutes into the episode for starting to complain about the deal. So, uh, yeah. Okay, guys, we have a deal today. Who's going to read it? And I will be quiet until I start pooping on it later. No, you don't. You just got to hold your poops. You can be positive. <laughs> hold your poops. Tighten it up over there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mills, you going right. to read this one or what are you thinking? Yeah, I'm trying to pull it up. We're not doing the fluid control, right? We're doing the... No, I got it, Mills. Okay, I got thanks. it. I, thanks I for bailing me out. <laughs> All right. So today we've got a... This is another big deal. So thanks to everybody that's sending us the big deals. We wanted to do ones with more EBITDA. So this is a global exporter of specialty lubricants. Specialty lube. Doing $40 million of revenue and $3 million of EBITDA. Wait, can I interrupt? I, I lobbied yep. for this deal just because I wanted to say the word lubricant as many times as possible in 30 minutes. So I'm very excited <laughs> that we're doing this. This is going to be a great one. This is going to be a great <laughs> it's episode. A, it's that kind of Friday. <laughs> uh, so the company is a leading global exporter of specialty lubricants and petrochemicals. In operation for over 24 years, the company has developed a broad set of capabilities and has completed work on a variety of projects. The company has strong relationships with key customers in a variety of markets, including the agricultural, pharmaceutical, cosmetic, food, veterinarian, textile, plastic manufacturing, automotive, construction, oil, gas, electrical, and mining industries. So basically everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, they have a the investment appeal, according to the broker, is that it has a superior name and reputation. The company enjoys a longstanding reputation for supplying quality products and superior customer support. Uh, the reflection of their reputation within the region 
is its approximate 80% rate of repeat customers. Interesting. Strong client relationships. They have an extensive customer list and good relationships since inception. The customer base is loyal uh, and they save on marketing costs that competitors must foot both in acquiring new customers and obtaining repeat business. Management will remain through a transition. Ownership is interested and willing to remain with the company after a transaction, which is great. And a rising gross profit trend throughout the historical period, gross profit has increased from 11.4% of sales in 2019 to 15.7% of sales during the interim 2021. So this teaser is a little bit old. Hit, hit the pause right there for a second. Yeah. Those, those gross margins, I feel like, are you both from a SaaS perspective or a tech perspective and e-commerce perspective? Are you puking right now? I mean, I'm, sorry, I'm like, not trying to poop on the deal, but I, I just I'm catching myself. That's crazy, right? To you. Yes, I have found in my travels that the definition of gross margin varies widely. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people will will run like a fully loaded gross margin, you know, and they'll have like a 80% product margin and then they'll layer in all these different things and the gross margin is basically contribution margin. Um, so I have learned to reserve judgment on low gross margins until I figure out how they calculate it. All right. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, definitely something to ask about. Um, so it says they've been efficiently able to control its cost of sales after high growth, demonstrating its ability to maximize profitability. It's been around since 1997. They have 200 active clients. They have 25 full-time employees. They have international operations as one of the bullets. Um, and of course, the growth opportunities are to increase sales and marketing, just like every deal we ever look at, to expand the products and services, also like every other deal we look at. Uh, but this last one is interesting, to increase tank capacity. And this business is located in the southwestern United States. So what do you guys know about specialty lube? Michael, I heard you were an expert. Yeah, thank you. This, this, you're letting me <laughs> revert back to my core nature, which is like I'm a 12-year-old boy. Like it's, like it's like this idea that every every man stops growing around 12 and they just like, yeah, like the same jokes are hilarious. Thank goodness my wife likes fart jokes. Like that's all I know. Otherwise, that's you know, I mean, anyway, I'm just kidding. She's a, she's a wonderful, classy lady. Anyway. So, um, like, I'm confused a little bit. So they talk about where they expo export to. So it's 58% Mexico, Colombia, 12%, Brazil, 14%, and others, 16%. So it looks like solely an exporter into Latin America. So that's something I think for us to put a pin into, that this is a dynamic going on here. But, like, did I, am I reading this right or wrong? Do they own the factories? Or are they just a brokerage of specialty lubricants? I read it as somewhere in between. So I don't think they own the factory, but I also don't think they're a broker. I think they're taking possession of the lubricants because it refers to things like, you know, expand tank capacity, right? I think they actually have inventory of lubricants, which they are then selling. So I think they look more like it's a, a distributor, distributor than a they distributor do a broker. Model. Yeah. The yeah, manufacturer, okay. if they were a manufacturer, their, their margins would be way higher and their employee count would be way higher. Only 25 employees and they're doing 40 million in revenue. It's because they have a they have a big warehouse and this stuff comes in huge tanks and it doesn't have to be like it, it's not like picking an e-com order where you have to like, you know, run and grab a bunch of different SKUs. This is stuff that's probably getting sold in bulk, bulk batch. So it's they're doing 60 percent of their export volume to Mexico. I got to assume that is either by truck or by rail. Right. So they're located in the southwestern United States, which is, you know, potentially western Texas or you know, Arizona, New Mexico, like probably darn close to the Mexican border, I would think. Um, and they 
but they probably also got a port if they're going to Brazil and Colombia and other places. So this kind of means they must have access to Gulf of Mexico or they're going down south around Panama Canal by a boat, right? Uh, $500 or whatever, or two Chili's gift cards bets you this business is in Houston. That's that's where this has got to be. Petro and the broker is located in Dallas. <laughs> that's pretty, yep. that's a dead <laughs> yeah, giveaway. Man. This Okay, and it, like you sure as heck don't want to do this business in California. And there ain't no oil anywhere near Florida. So that pretty much rules out everything there. So this, this business got to be in Houston. Yep, that great call. So they're basically, they're buying specialty lube and petrochemicals. And most lube is, is made from oil, right? At the end of the day. Um, well, maybe not most. This kind of lube uh, is made from oil. <laughs> well, as an expert, uh, let me tell you how this works, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what it's made of. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the, this is either going to be the best or the worst episode we've ever made. I'm pretty sure oh the boy. best. Let's keep going. So, uh, so yeah, I agree, Houston. So they're probably sending it either by boat, you know, brokering transit, um, and the, or by rail or or by truck even into Mexico uh, or these other places. So my question is, you know, what type of lubes are they selling that you cannot buy? in Mexico or Brazil or Colombia, you know, one of my first diligence questions here would be, why does this company exist? You know, what is, what is the reason for being that this company is here? So you like, and I asked that for any distributor, right? So whoever's manufacturing these petrochemicals and lubricants, right? Clearly does not want to serve this market, right? Is, has not vertically integrated to serve this market directly. Um, you know, maybe I would be asking, do they export to other places? Because if the whoever makes this stuff is exporting to a whole bunch of other South American countries, but not these three, I'd want to understand why. I'd also want to understand if they might start doing that, you know, shortly and crowd me yeah. out entirely. Look, the the reason this business is in Houston and the reason there isn't a competitor in some of these other places is the refining capacity that happens, right? So this stuff is getting made, you know, you're doing refining, which the, the global center for that, or at least in North America, is right there in Houston. Like, have you guys ever been to East Houston? Have you ever driven through there? No. Nope. Literally, no. it's like, there's, if you drive through at night, it kind of feels like you're driving through Mordor. Like, it's really odd. <laughs> like, the, the west side of Houston is, looks like normal America. The east side of Houston is just shipping and like petrochemical production. Like, you'll just go out and there's just like, all of these refineries just like all over the place, which makes me not want to live there, by the way. Like, I don't know if you've ever looked at the cancer numbers for East Houston. Like, you do not want to live there. It's And it's where, like, the not-so-nice side of town is. But anyway, like, all Yikes. this stuff comes out of these... Re- yeah, that's... There you go. There's my sales pitch for East Houston. Like, I, re- I recommend <laughs> I <love> against it. <laughs> it. <laughs> so, like, there's just, like, you'll, you'll, you'll drive into East Houston and you're like, what's that smell? And you realize it's just petroleum in the air, like, everywhere. Um, but I think that's why this business is there, right? You're probably in the east side of Houston. You're near these refiners. You're going and you're buying bulk from them of, you know, whatever distillate comes out of the refining process that you need. Um, and I think most people also don't know that oil isn't this like, like uniform commodity. Are you guys familiar with kind of how this works? Uh, yes, it works in a lot of very complicated ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If people are like oil is oil, it's like, no, it actually turns out it's a really, it's a, you know, a byproduct of organic processes and it, you get this stuff that's like anything from like sludge to like, basically it looks like, you know, maple syrup. And so all of that comes out in a very messy kind of thing. 
And by the way, can I tell you an aside about the oil business? Would you guys like to hear one? Yes, I would. Fellow Texan, tell us. (laughs) So one of my buddies, one of my buddies uh, needed to earn some extra money. So he took a job working out on an oil rig in West Texas. And he was there for four weeks and he came back and we had coffee the other day and he goes, Curdly, we need to ban petroleum. That's what he said to me. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, dude, like people have no idea how bad for the environment petroleum production is. And he's like, do you know what we used to clean things? And I'm like, no. He's like, we go buy dozens of 50-gallon drums of diesel and then we put it into a sprayer and we spray down things to get the oil off. That's the only way we can do it. We just spray diesel all over the place. And then, and I'm like, well, then what happens to the water or the diesel when you're done spraying off the sludge? He's like, it just goes into a puddle over in the corner. And I'm like, then what happens? And he's like, before we leave, we cover it up with dirt. That is the, <laughs> that's how this works. <laughs> and I, but like, so you've got that where it's like, like oil production is this disgusting thing. But at the same time, like you talk to people and you're like, do you understand how much petroleum is involved in everything in front of you, like within three feet? And people have no clue, no clue. Like you'll see these people they are like, we need to ban petroleum. And they're like dressed in polyester and like wearing plastic glasses and throwing away stuff in plastic sacks. And it's like, there's this huge disconnect where people have no idea how bad it is, but also they have no idea how bad life would be without petroleum. Like it's really fascinating. That was my story. The sludge Um, part of that, Michael, like the stuff that you're talking about that is like the the leftover, you know, the bottom of the barrel, it is like what most roofing products are made out of. So (laughs) you're welcome. It all gets (laughs) so you wouldn't have roofs or plastic (laughs) or polyester. But it all gets used. It's kind of the amazing thing. Like I think obviously what we're talking about for this business is a much more kind of purified, high-end. It's a like the the actual customer to me on this matters a lot because there may be zero switching cost and this is an absolute commodity product and that's why they're selling it in Mexico and not in the United States because it may be that the manufacturer is like no we are selling it in North America where it's easy somebody else can go sell it somewhere where it's more difficult or right it could be something that's highly highly specialized. And maybe there aren't really like high switching costs, but in a very tightly controlled manufacturing process, people just don't want to change things if they don't have to. And so if you're used to making, you know, I don't know, like they list all these different things, but if you're used to making, you know, FDA approved drugs and you have to have small, very, very small quantities of lubricant in your manufacturing process, you try not to change those things if you don't absolutely have to, because you could make bad batches of pills, you know, just because you switched your lube. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the other thing too, that could be the huge mode on this business is whoever manufactures the lubes, maybe they've got an exclusive territory, you know, depending on their contract. And this could be, this could be the greatest risk or the biggest moat or both in this business, right? If they have one supplier of lubes and they've got like a protected territory or like that contract is really hard to get, or there's 10 years left on it, or, you know, there could be a real strong moat in that contract. Or there could be no mode at all and just a bunch of risk if you know they'll sell it to anybody off the street and can cancel a contract at any time. Uh, so that you know, sourcing these lubes for any distributor, sourcing the things that you distribute and understanding where they come from and how secure that supply is would be critical. Yeah. All right. I have another wager for you. Since we've already bet two Chili's gift cards, I will double or nothing. Double or nothing. That, double or nothing that at least half of the people in this company speak Spanish fluently and at least half of them understand Latin American culture. Very well. Oh, like this that's is not easy owned bet. by 
<laughs> there's not, because look at, I mean, here's very interesting. The largest economy in South America is Brazil. That's only, and they speak Portuguese. That's only 14% of their market. Mexico, Colombia, and all these others, they all speak Spanish. Some better than others, right, Mirko? Yeah. yeah. By, by the way, I'm terrified of ever going to Chile because have you ever heard their Spanish? It's, it's, it's not Spanish. Like, no. <laughs> like the Colombians, the Colombians are these wonderful people, are the Mexicans. They basically have basically American accents, but they speak Spanish. Like, it's really wonderful. It's super easy to understand. And then, uh, but then you go to, you go to Chile and like, it is, it just sounds like gibberish. Like, it is amazing. Like, very difficult. So I'm terrified to go there, but I totally want to just because I look forward to opportunities to feel like an idiot. Anyway, like, so I think buyer business fit is really important with this. When we talk about this idea, like, if I was to own this company, I either me or somebody that's a partner with me needs to understand Latin America, like the back of their hand, speak Spanish, do all that very well. Because all these people, when they're customers, they want to speak their native language. That's how you're going to win these people over. Um, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. So I think that's a huge thing. The good news is Houston is full of people that speak Spanish. Like that's a, that's a good thing for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's tough, right? If you're selling this to a whole bunch of Mexican, Brazilian, Colombian guys, and you walked in, you know, gringo guy, don't speak Spanish. Hi, I'm the new owner of the business, you know, who supplies the lube, you know, you don't think there's three other competitors who could probably supply the same lube, you know, that's a business risk. You know, if they suddenly don't like you or don't think you fit or, or you're perceived as a downgrade. And I think owner. that comes into what, what we talk about a lot of times, like when you're buying a business like this, what are you actually buying? Right. And Mills was talking about that. Like, are you, and you guys were like, are you buying some sort of economies of scale that make it difficult to compete with this business? Or are you buying the relationships that this owner potentially has, which I bet you are a big chunk of the moat uh, of the business here. When you dig into this, I bet you discover like, oh, like they all like working with Tito. And if Tito leaves, like we have some real issues here to make sure the customers keep with us. We'll see. Have you guys ever gotten Sims from this broker? I know we've talked about them some in the past, but this is your we favorite do, broker, isn't it? Mills? I do love choosing generational group for our episodes with you because it always turns into something where you're just using code words to be like, Ugh. it's true. Like it's trigger warning. That's basically what it <laughs> is. Trigger warning. Yeah. It's like trigger warning. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I'll say today, because I don't think I've said this in a while, is that every single one of their Sims is the exact same. Like it's, it's in what uh, way it's a very, very rigid template and they copy and paste the pertinent details that the seller provides. It's not a very, like we, we've looked at some Sims where we're like, this thing is awesome. Like I kind of like, you want to frame it, you want to save it because it's so unique or it's informative or like, it's just captures the nuance of the business. This particular broker Sims, they are just copy and paste in the exact same template and the seller provides all the info. So there's, you just have to know when you get a SIM from this broker or a broker like this, that it hasn't necessarily been managed by a sell side advisor. It's just like, they're like, there'll be typos in it. And it's just things that the seller has said that don't really make any sense, but it's just because, you know, they have a bunch of, you know, entry level folks who are just scraping stuff from, you know, a form document with a seller and putting it into the Sims. I mean, it's, it, it's really interesting when you look at the broker market. At one end of the spectrum, you have the guys like the Calder guys who are running like basically an investment bank for Main Street businesses. And you have Generational Group who's just basically running a machine that looks like biz by sell with like some emails. And, um, and like the couple conversations I've had with their brokers, it felt like high pressure sales. They're like, are turn and burn, turn and burn, turn and burn. And I was like, 
uh, no, like, do you think I could actually see the SIM first before I make an offer? And they're like, no, like you need to throw in an LOI and then we'll talk to you. I was like, what the hell's going on? And then like, there were people in the background, like trying to sell me penny stocks. That's what it sounded like. <laughs> I, I hate this when brokers do this because it totally misaligns incentives, right? And actually I've, I've thought for a long time that incentives are misaligned, right? Because when you think about a broker, right? You hire them entirely on contingency usually, right? So if the business does not sell, they make zero. If the business does sell, let's say they stand to make, you know, half a million dollars, right? If the business sells for 10 or even 20% less, they make $400,000 instead of half a million dollars. But if it doesn't sell at all, they make zero, right? So they really have very little incentive, even if you've aligned, you know, with their fee, with a percent of deal value, et cetera, they would much rather close a deal at a bad price than not close a deal at all. Uh, so you have to be really, really aware of that. So in economics, this is called the principal agent problem. And the proof of the principal agent problem is they went and did a study. So the principal agent problem is like you have a real estate agent, they're marketing your house for you. They went and did a study. And how much, let's guess, how much more do you think a houses on average sold for when the broker owned the house? So they were selling their own house or they were selling somebody else's house. How much more do you think they, they would get for the house on average when they sold their own house? Double digit. 10% plus or more is exactly 10%. Like, it's okay. Yeah. Guys, look, let's talk about a little podcast. Okay. When I ask a question like that to make me look good, you're supposed to say about 3% or $12,000. And yeah. then, but you're not supposed to guess the right answer. Okay. If you guess the right answer, I look like a moron. Like I'm saying something. <laughs> so anyway, and, and I don't need any help looking like a moron. I'm doing a great job. But yeah, so they get 10% more. So like, say it's a $500,000 house, like the average agents selling their own house will get $50,000 more for it because of this problem, which is, you know, they're better off to do three deals at a 90% maximum price than to do one deal at 100%. So it creates this whole misaligned incentive uh, mess. It's called the principal agent problem. You can totally, if you're bored, you can totally, like me, go watch YouTube videos about economic concepts. Well, and it's everywhere too, because the, ba the basic concept, and it's in the name, which is in the principal and the agent, the principal being the person who benefits primarily from any transaction, right? Uh, or any interaction at all. And the agent being someone representing the principal, right? And so the, the misalignment or the slippage between the incentives of the agent and the incentives of the principal, uh, which happens all the time, is the principal agent problem. And it's not just in selling businesses or yeah, real estate. Either. 100%. So one of the things about their model that I think I have talked about more recently is that they fee off of it, like the generational group. They are phenomenal at customer acquisition. They go do these seminars for free in different cities where they're like, hey, do you want to know more about the value of your business? And this is the biggest transaction of your lifetime. And, you know, we have the largest uh, the largest network of you know qualified buyers and they like drop all these nuggets. They get business owners in the room and they do a free, you know, two hour thing. And then they're like, well, you know, if you basically the, the dilemma they leave you with is it's a massive question. What's your business worth? And then they'll sell you a business valuation for you know, more than what a business valuation should actually cost if you like went to a CVA or a CPA. And then you love the number, like surprise, surprise, right? The number they tell you is fantastic. And you're like doing the math in your head and cashing the check. And you're like, this is awesome. And they're like, well, I mean, it's no, there's no risk. There's no obligation, but do you want us to take you to market? And like, if we could get you that number, would you be happy? And you're like, oh yeah, that would be great. And then they charge you like exorbitantly high fees and you sign I've, I've been, I've interacted with tons of sellers who've done this, but you sign documents that are, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily 
two-sided. They're, they're more one-sided. And they take you to they take you to market and it's a huge flash in the pan. There's a lot of interest, but the numbers don't end up meeting your expectations like 99% of the time. And a lot of their fee model, which I don't think is wrong, it's just not incredibly transparent, is not on success fees. It's not based on actually selling businesses. It's on, you know, generating all this uh, kind of effort on the front end. Well, I mean, that right there, Mills, if your broker tries to charge you anything more, anything up front or anything even nominally that is not tied directly to the transaction of the business, it's a huge red flag. In this market, I will say historically, though, most investment banks will charge some type of retainer and they'll credit it against the success fee. So it's like, okay, you know, we're going to do a bunch of legwork because the the broker and when you think about their model they can do all this work and have all this sunk costs and work just tons and tons of hours and then get you to the finish line and if you're like ah you know what i changed my mind i don't want to sell so those agreements i mean they can be incredibly complicated but some brokers especially in different market conditions than today the broker will say look if we're getting you x price at least over this floor and you don't sell and we have you know an offer or we have LOIs or whatever it may be, and you don't sell, you're still paying us something. If you just choose to walk away you know, for some other reason, then we can't bring you a qualified buyer. But yes. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. The, that fee, so I'll give you an example. I'll give people a real numbers example. So I was a, a shareholder in a business that was expected to sell for a, a number that would have netted the intermediary a $2 million fee uh, if everything went well. Um, their retainer was $50,000. Yes. Yes. Right. So like, that's <laughs> the magnitude here that yeah. we should be talking about. Like if they walk away with only the retainer should be a number such that if they walk away with only, only the retainer, they are pretty disappointed. Yeah. Right. It should not be a number that if they walk away with only the, the retainer, they feel like they got a good return on the time invested. Right. It should be a bummer for them and like a small, uh, you know, uh, sweetener, but not something that makes it worth their time. So let's let's bring this one to a close. I think we get asked a lot, like, okay, who should do this deal and how would you structure it? So who who wants to take a, who wants to take a stab at that? Maybe I'll do who who let me do who should do this deal and when you t- while you guys think about who should structure it. Does that work? Oh, yep. um, okay. So the person I think should do this deal, you should want to live in Houston. You should be comfortable traveling a lot to Latin America. Uh, your superpower between you and possibly some of your team uh, should be. Latin American culture, possibly already in the lubricant and like exporting, like you should have been in petroleum at some point because I, like me, I don't know anything about this other than all the crap I just told you here in the, in this podcast. Um, and you should be wanting to go like marketing and selling and whining and dining guys who are doing manufacturing in Bolivia or wherever, uh, seems like a ton of fun to you. Like that's, that's great times. And you want to spend that time on the road. Cause you're probably going to be on the road a third of the year. I mean, easily. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna get to love United Airlines. So I think that's the buyer here, um, and open to open to argument about that. But then you know, throw it over to you guys. Like, what would you pay, and how would you structure it? Really quick before we go there, Michael, that brings up a really good point. In due diligence on a business like this, you absolutely need to understand from start to finish what is their sales process like, because in this type of business development you know kind of relationship and scheme, there are crazy things that come out in due diligence. Uh, about you know what owners will um, allow or you know even you know explicitly ask their salespeople to do, and not all of it is totally above board. And 
you know, there's some things that, you know, maybe morally gray, but there's also things that are clearly morally black and white. And in this type of business, you'd want to really understand the sales process in the due diligence phase, not post-close when you're like, oh, you know what? We uh, we just outright bribe people, you know, and I need to I send this guy a hooker that. every month to get the deal done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just in especially in this type of business that I've I've seen some horror stories firsthand and, and second. Yeah. So as far as kind of price, so generational generational equity, you got to hand it to them. They do not listen asking price. Um, so you just kind of have to bid. Um, so assu- I'm going to make some assumptions here, assuming that there's not like a giant flaw in the, you know, on the supply side where the, the lube manufacturer can cut them off at any time, or, you know, assuming there's some moat here and there's a reason this business exists, right? There's a reason their customers buy from them. There's a reason their supplier uses them to go to, to reach these markets. Assuming there's a reason this business exists, it's 3 million bucks at EBITDA. It's a distributor. The margins aren't great. Um, I would not be surprised to see this sell for six times, just given size. Um, I think only if it's a strategic. I think if it's a strategic, I could see it going for six times. But I think their margins are so thin that I don't really see a lot of like margin of safety, especially because my guess is that they have like pretty, uh, obviously they have low gross margin and they have probably like pretty rigid fixed costs, like the facility and, you know, these 25 employees, I don't think they could get like much leaner. I think if, if a like outside investor is underwriting this and it has to cash flow, I, I would think it would go for less, but I think if it's a strategic and they have some synergies that they're baking in, I could totally see somebody paying six times. Oh, I mean, I could see more if it's a strategic. So for example, they got 40 million in sales and a 15% gross margin that gives you 6 million bucks to play with. And I'm going to assume it's a pretty loaded gross margin here. They're projecting three million bucks of EBITDA, so that means they got three million bucks of SGNA, mm-hmm. essentially, right? So if you can take that out, now it's six million dollars of EBITDA, you know, to a strategic, which is de facto, uh, which is pro forma three times if you pay six times, right? So I mean, I could easily see it when I, when I worked in investment banking in two thousand eight. Now, granted, that's a long time now ago now, and I'm dating myself, but we would sell distributors for eight times, you know, mid mark, you know, five million dollar EBITDA distributors would go for eight times. Now, and so private equity groups, uh, which I kind of thought was crazy because the margins were so bad. Um, but, you know, that's that's how it can get sometimes. Let's say, though, you're an individual buyer here. You're not private equity. You're not, you know, chasing a highly leveraged return. Yeah, I think five times, you know, four to five times. The thing is, guys, like once you get above that $2 million of EBITDA, though, a lot of the rules start to change. You know, like the private equity and strategic, like real private equity with a committed fund starts to get involved. Um, and I've, I've seen stuff go for big numbers. Once you crack that, it used to be kind of like two. Now it's closer to three. But once you crack three million and EBITDA, you know, stuff can get weird. You got to get. And this is actually where a good intermediary can really make a difference, which is why it really surprises me when businesses this big, which this is not a big business in the grand scheme of the world. But when you start to get to three million bucks at EBITDA, I'm a little surprised to see somebody hire a generational equity, you know, like a churn and burn shop like that. Versus like a lower middle market investment bank that will write like a real sim and go out mm-hmm. to 200 private equity groups, you know, et cetera, who are all going to be thinking five to seven times versus, you know, a bunch of idiots like us who start off thinking three to five times. Right. And I think part of the reason this gets hard, like for me, as I try and think about penciling it is, you know, 
based on sales price, you're probably, you probably have between like a million and a half and maybe like just under $2 million a year in debt service, depending on the terms of your debt. So like, you know, I just think it's so difficult to think about paying up for a business that doesn't have like some incredible X factor that is either growth, right? Or incredibly sticky and predictable revenue and demand. And, you know, like we didn't talk about like geopolitical risk and a bunch of things, right. That could, you know, we could have a new, you know, a new president or, you know, a new Congress and all of a sudden just, you may get legisl you know, legislation that prohibits you from doing, doing business the way you have been. So I don't know. I just, I think this, this is, if you're looking for a business to buy, this has a lot of the trappings that you definitely get the SIM. You, you do your due diligence. You have a conversation with the broker and try and have a conversation with the seller and figure out, is there actually something there? If, if like Gurdley, you said, if it checks enough of those general boxes, just categorically. This is one of those ones that people are going to look at that are in our audience and are going to be like, well, sounds pretty good. Cause it does sound pretty good. And then they're going to, we're going to get DMs like, you won't believe what I found when I looked into this one. It's going to, this is one of those deals. So whatever you find, definitely DM us because we love the laughs. It's hilarious. Yeah. 10 bucks says Bill's hooker prediction is right. <laughs> yes, most likely. It'll be like our Costa Rica casino. Um, so on that note, our ask, please, please, please uh, shop from our sponsor. Uh, and because I'm an amazingly well-prepared host, I don't know who it is, but I'm sure they're awesome. And then number two, pick one friend that you think needs to hear uh, uh, our podcast and send them an episode and please say, please listen to this because I think you'll like it. If you like what we're doing, just recommend it to one person and say, I enjoy this. Please, please check it out. Uh, and that would be a huge favor for us. By the way, this is hashtag growth hacking. We're doing a great job. So please do that if you like this. Uh, we are having fun and we want to reach the message to more people. So appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next week.